Welcome to the Today is a Good Day podcast, a podcast to bring you a new point of support as you navigate your NICU journey. Today is a Good Day is here to be a part of your conversations, whether your baby was born prematurely, has special needs, or if your family is grieving a loss. The voices you will hear on the Today is a Good Day podcast are personal stories from people who have been there. Please don't forget to hit subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening app. On this episode, we will discuss mental health for NICU families. This is an important topic that we should discuss every day. Mental health is a significant issue for parents in the NICU. If you're feeling the stress of the NICU, you are certainly not alone. And if you're currently navigating your own NICU journey, listen closely to our guests today as they talk about trauma as it relates to the NICU experience along with the importance of self-care and recognizing signs of postpartum depression. Joining us for this important conversation are Kelly Wickland, licensed psychotherapist and owner and clinical director at the Maternal Wellness Center, and Silver Pianov, fellow NICU mom, doula, and childbirth educator. So happy to have you both here. Very grateful to know you and to have you as guests on the show today. So question for both of you. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Why did you get into this line of work? Silver, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Um, so I had my oldest son and, you know, things actually went fairly textbook. I didn't have too much going on, but I didn't realize until afterwards that a lot of it had to do with the care and support that I had. You know, I happened to fall into using a midwife who happened to tell me to just take a childbirth class that was at the maternal wellness center. And um, I think seeing that my first journey into being a parent, even though it happened unexpectedly in ways that we hadn't really planned for, the key was support all along the way. It wasn't overly traumatic. It wasn't as scary as it could have been without the support. So when he was just about 10 weeks old, I kind of ventured into volunteer parent support. And then that slowly evolved into postpartum doula care, childbirth education and things like that, just to kind of make sure that everyone feels really supported. And um, because I don't think that my first experience would have been manageable if I wouldn't have had that support. And I know that after that, I learned that that support wasn't super common for everyone. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't go into their pregnancy with just really holistic support, both physically and mentally. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Kelly, how'd you get into this line of work? Well, my undergraduate training was in sociology and my master's degree is in clinical psychology. And I have a license. I did an extensive internship. And in all of that training, never once did I hear about the transition to parenthood being a developmental milestone. It was not taught that way. It is not considered to be one, at least at the time of my training. And then I became a parent. And it's so extensively transformational, as you both know, on every level, in every domain of life, neurologically, psychologically, emotionally, financially, relationally. It does not leave any arena of life untouched. And I was really struck by that. I was processing my own motherhood at the time. My interest in motherhood at the macro level, my fascination with it at the micro, 
And I thought there's so much silence around this. And it astonished me. It absolutely astonished me um, that it wasn't in the standard curriculum of all of my training. And I became enamored with it, passionate about it. I was living it. I became trained in maternal mental health, uh, became my life's work, my personal passion project. Um, and to note that the stories I'd heard about motherhood, you know, before I came, became one were very sanitized. It was only positive. Like, mm-hmm. You're just going to love every second of it. You get this, you get these stories through the lens of lots of grandmas who were mothers, you know, became mothers 20 to 30 years prior. Um, It's, you know, we have, we have deleting brains. We we forget how hard things were. So that these stories of like transcendent happiness all day, (laughs) it's just not at all realistic for any mom I know. Right. Um, and so there's just in, this incredible void I noticed in in the field, in psychology, and I just became bent on trying to speak into that void and learn as much as I could about it. And it was transformational. And I was raising little kids and starting a practice, and my, my private practice grew with my children. And they've grown up together, and I have a 15-year-old and an almost 13-year-old, and um, we've, we've been doing this all along the way together. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. And when you talk about that void, I mean, I think that when we look at motherhood and we look at families who you work with and you work with NICU moms, you work with families who experience full term birth, right? Mm-hmm. What is the first thing they come to you about? What What's one of the biggest things that they're struggling with that they need help with um, that they talk with you? About. We see the full spectrum of maternal mental health. So this would be families struggling with infertility, infant loss, pregnancy loss, um, postpartum depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, um, living with a special needs child, grasping that, the grief around that. Um, and, and we see f- women, you know, five or six years later that have thought, you know, I've never really been the same again. I've actually never returned to my familiar known self and they come in for care then. Um, so there's, you know, the, the time in this, of a woman's life, the transition into parenthood is the most psychologically vulnerable time in her entire lifespan. And so there are a lot of things that can go wrong and a lot of things that do go wrong. And there's not a lot of support around that. There's not a lot of good un- understanding around that. Um, there's a lot of shame around that, that if I am not doing well, it must mean I'm not a good mom. Mm-hmm. It must mean I'm doing this badly. Um, and the reality is that culturally, we don't do a good job supporting parents mm-hmm. at all. We fail them miserably on every level. And so they are doing bad for so many reasons beyond themselves. And so we usually start there. <laughs> that's, that's, There's not necessarily one topic that is impacting a majority of families necessarily. The range of patients that we see is so varied and mm-hmm. so comprehensive and different um, that it's hard to make a generalization. Right. But I would say that 
most, if we had to distill it down to sort of one common theme is generally that women feel terrible, that they don't feel like they're doing a good job at this and that Mm -hmm. they're not loving every second of it because how could they? That's not real. That's Mm -hmm. not even possible. And that's the first step towards releasing them and freeing them from the profound shame is that the world is not serving you well. It is not a cakewalk. There's so much about parenthood that is incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. and it's wildly expansive. This is what this is what ends up being the place of my fascination with maternal mental health is it's incredibly expansive personally, emotionally, psychologically. And it is very, very fraught. It is complex. Um, There's a lot of vulnerability. There's a lot of room for things to go badly. And they do. (laughs) You know, anxiety emerges, depression emerges. Yes. And it it can hit at various times. I mean, not right at that immediate uh, immediate time for us personally in the NICU. I mean, I remember anxiety hitting a couple of years later. And mm-hmm. when we really took a step back and we were kind of through the NICU experience, our surviving daughter was in her mm-hmm. early intervention, but it can hit later on. And Silver, do you have anything to add as we're talking about this with the mental health and what you see with families you work with? Yeah. And I mean, actually, just to touch on what you were saying, I remember coping very well in the NICU. Um, my daughter also had a couple surgeries afterwards, pretty major surgeries. Um, there, She was resuscitated a couple of times, things like that. And I remember going through it really well. And then I was at a infant CPR training and it just... As soon as I went to go do that and then watching the videos, I remember being like, I'm not okay here Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it was one of those like you're able to kind of compartmentalize and, you know, step back and you're in survival mode. I feel like a lot of early parenthood, especially if there's NICU or trauma, you're surviving it. But these things have a tendency to catch up with us. So, you know, sometimes it's within a few days and sometimes it's a couple of years later or, you know, months later. Um, and I see that with my work, part of what I try to focus on is making sure that the clients and the family that I'm working with know of the resources. So it doesn't have to be that delayed, that delayed um anxiety and depression that comes later when your baby's five months or five years old, you know? Um, And that's why I've really enjoyed kind of having that connection, teaching with the Maternal Wellness Center, because it's, you know, I stick those cards in everyone's Mm -hmm. bag and every client, you know, just in case, make sure you have a resource, you know, so you don't have to be the person who feels it so much later on. But I mean, you know, I was aware of the resources and still, you know, it, I think we just get stuck in that survival mode quite a bit as parents. How do you help people find the resources? Because I do think that is a key problem. And I remember from our own personal NICU story and what we talk to families about now, make sure you're asking about secondary insurance, make sure you're asking about early intervention, all of the different things that we wish we had known about in the NICU journey. But where do families, what what's their best path to find that information, to find the resources at the hospital they're in? I mean, honestly, it's other parents. That's been my experience. Um, I had a friend who was in the same NICU as I was in, and um, she was discharged with a special needs child. She wasn't aware of early intervention. There hadn't been a referral. There hadn't been anything. And because of my background, I was like, oh, you know, here's where you go for this. Here's where you go for that. And even in my own journey, 
Um, I wasn't aware of the secondary insurance. We had great insurance. Well, I didn't realize when your child needs therapy, I mean, it's virtually impossible for most to be able to manage the financial aspect of ongoing therapy, depending on your, you know, insurance coverage and things like that. And I really learned a lot from other parents, which is why I think like the listening sessions and the online support groups and all of those things are have a really valuable role. And then I think the other aspect is, you know, welcome packets in the NICU, uh, knowing who the social worker is at the hospital, things like that can be really beneficial because sometimes we aren't aware that those resources are there. Some facilities, you know, it runs smoothly. I've found that sometimes it even just depends on who happens to be admitting you that day, who happens to be discharging you. Are they busy on the unit at that day? Do they have time? You know, we spent time at a couple different hospitals. So we, you know, were able to see how things were a little bit different in different places. So with my one, I remember we were admitted to pick you. And as soon as we walked on the floor, someone gave us a tour. They gave us all the resources. But, you know, that doesn't always happen. So I think that um, parent groups can Mm -hmm. be just super beneficial, especially local ones, which are a little bit harder sometimes. But if you have that local NICU or special needs or whatever applies, parent group, I think that's where you find the best resources. Um, I know that there are lots of great organizations that are kind of putting resource packets together and facilities are getting better. Um, But if you're not sure where to go, ask another NICU parent. Yes. Yeah, that's great advice. And I also think you brought up a good point with the social worker. Not all hospitals have that resource, but it's worth asking if your hospital does and making sure that you utilize their services. I mean, looking back, I remember I thought, oh, we can figure this out on our own. And that was one of my biggest regrets. I don't know why we didn't ask for more help, right, to to get help through the application process and all the things that we were we were trying to do. So now, Silver, you have been in the NICU. You've mm-hmm. experienced the NICU. What do you remember about it? What really stands out? What are some of the biggest emotions that you remember feeling? And how did you work through all of it? Yeah, so we had two different stays for like two very different reasons and two very different experiences. The first one was my now six-year-old full-term baby, born at a birth center, all went well. I did have a difficult pregnancy, but there was nothing that said to us, we're going to have a NICU stay. Um, And through a series of events, we were both fine, but it became a precaution that he spent a few days in the NICU. And I just remember being completely caught off guard by that separation. You know, with my daughter, it was a little bit easier because we knew she was coming early. And you can kind of prepare for that. Nothing makes it easy, but at least you have that time to process and expect that. Um, With him, we had had a few hours together and then suddenly I'm on a completely different floor. He's in the NICU um, and it was, okay, you can see your baby every four hours and that's it, you know? And so it was very, because I needed um, treatment as well. So it was just like a very, um, I think lack of control is the emotion that stuck out the most because I had been so used to having a baby, keeping my baby, feeding my baby when I wanted to, using the schedule, you know, meeting both of our own needs. And here, you know, I'd given birth a few hours before I'm in the ER, he's in the NICU. And I just remember being a world. But the thing that I remember most is that There's always a helper. I mean, maybe not always, but often when you're in the NICU, when you're in the hospital, there's there seems to be like that one nurse that has a tendency to stand out 
And that was something that stuck out to me. You know, I'm in the ER coming from a birth center, totally like, oh my goodness. And a nurse comes up to me and she's like, hey, I was a patient there. I totally understand this is not what you were expecting. And I get it. And it was just that little bit of having someone be like, I get it, that I was like, okay, we can do this. And then um, getting through the part where I was discharged and he was not discharged yet. Again, not something that we were expecting. That was, I think, um, a very hard blow, you know, because you just don't expect to go give birth and then go home without your child. And I had signed up for the um, parent room, but there there was a mistake. The nurse wrote it on the wrong day or something like that. And I remember wheeling into the NICU sobbing because, you know, your hormones are all over the place. This is not the plan. And the receptionist who I'm sitting here thinking like there's parents here who have 23 weekers. There's parents here with kids who have, you know, significant things going on. And here we're here mostly for observation and getting set up for home care. And she is like, you know what, I think I can do something for you. And, you know, was able to set something up that I was able to stay. And so it's like the little Mm -hmm. things I think was the way that I was coping. And I think that um, I had a tendency to try and be stoic through the NICU journeys. But when I was like, I'm not doing okay, that's when people are like, hey, let me help you, you know? And so, um, like you said, not knowing to ask for the social worker and things like that. Um, I would say there's an aspect of vulnerability is kind of how your needs get met. Um, if you're the stoic parent, uh, sometimes there's the assumption that you're doing okay. And I think a lot of NICU parents are stoic because it's survival. Right. And then with my daughter, I think you know, my water had broke at 29 weeks. We, you know, I knew she was going to the NICU regardless of when she came, there was going to be a NICU stay. And for her, again, it became that lack of control. That was very difficult for me. Um, I'm sure the nurses that, that knew me would be able to attest to that. Um, I was very like asking questions about everything. And that was kind of how I coped. Let me stay involved. Let me know what's going on. I want to know what happened while, you know, I was at home asleep. I want to know how much she ate. I want to know if she coded. I want to know everything. That was kind of my coping was information and data. So I would spend my time in there scrolling through medical journals to find out if they were following the, you know, what was the most up-to-date information on everything. Um, but it was just a lot of lack of control, I mm-hmm. think, was the thing that I struggled with most. And something that I, I mean, parenthood in general <laughs> is this, like, you don't have as much control as you think or that you're used to. And then you add in a NICU journey. And you really have so little control. Um, But I think the coping was fine. The little areas that I could control, which wasn't many, but there were areas that I could control. And then also learning to make friends with the nurses. Because when I understood and saw who was taking care of my infant, it was easier to go home. Mm -hmm. It was easier to rest. It was easier to deal with those emotions because I'm like, you know what? I know that this nurse who's on tonight really cares. I'm going home and getting a good night's sleep. And not to suggest that, you know, that's not how every nurse is, but just that idea that when you've made that connection with a certain nurse, um, it's a great way to cope. Uh, I think uh, so important, those connections. And, and I think you also talked about something that's really important is helping to be an advocate for your child by writing questions down, asking a lot of questions, making sure that you are getting all the information that you need. So we have so much to dive into here. I'm really excited. (laughs) I'm taking notes and have all kinds of questions to ask. But one of the things that I want to go back to that you mentioned, which I think is really hard for a lot of NICU families to do and parents to do, is to let their guard down. 
they're going to be stoic. They're going to make it through. I can do this, right? I'm tough. I can do this. Well, and you just get in this mindset where you go in and you're just going to take the day as it comes. How did you allow yourself to kind of step back and be vulnerable and to ask for the help that you needed? What, what, and the reason I ask that is, how could other families do that, right? How did, how did you do it? Yeah, so I am probably the worst person to ask. <laughs> in, um, with the first one, it was, hey, your hormones are up here. Suddenly, they've just crashed through, and I'm not doing okay. I had had a really, really difficult pregnancy with him. I had hyperemesis the whole nine months. I was just defeated by the time he was born. And so rolling into um, the NICU and being told that I didn't have a place to sleep just kind of, I was just like, I can't do it. And, you know, I lost it. So it was just like a natural response to the circumstances. With my daughter, um, we were there for about six and a half weeks. And in the beginning, I was very, very stoic. Didn't like to ask people for help. Um, I felt like, you know, I had been discharged after being on bed rest that I could do it all. And um, you can't (laughs) at all. So, um, I mean, for me, in both cases, it really became a I have no choice but to ask for help. But in doing that, I realized people are willing to help. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people want to help. Um, And I think it just is one of those. um, We have to kind of learn that it's safe to be vulnerable in certain circumstances. I don't know that there's a way that I can say, hey, just. Be vulnerable. Just, you know, don't be stoic. I don't know if Kelly has more input on that. But I mean, for me, it came out of the circumstances. I didn't have much choice. I mean, going back now, if I had another NICU stay, I would know a little bit more to just let my guard down. But, you know, in your first your first experience, I don't know that. I think what it what it does show is your vulnerability allowed for other people to step in and help you. And so no matter how you got to that point, it definitely allowed for people to to help. Um, I also wanted to go back to something else you said, which was lack of control. And as we look at where we are today, as we have masks on that we're wearing and we think about the NICU journey on its own, but then adding on the layer of COVID-19 and the pandemic that we're going through. I have to ask you, Kelly, how have you been helping families and guiding them coming home, working through anxiety with COVID added on to a birth experience? Oh, that's been the variable no one wanted or needed. Um, It's certainly complicated matters a lot um, for families. Uh, The the isolation, which would have already been very pronounced and pervasive, is at the next level. The vigilance is at another level now for most families, but particularly for the medically fragile ones. So it's it's um, adding a lot of suffering. That there's no way to mince words around that. It's adding a lot of fear, a lot of worry, a lot of suffering in mm-hmm. general. Um, and I think, you know, Silver speaks to so much of what is um, the encapsulation of the NICU experience, which is um, the loss of control, is lack of agency. Um, you know. A lot of parents in their life can make things happen. They know things, they do things, they have a high sense of capability and agency, and you lose that. You're trusting your beloved child that you made with your body 
into the hands of strangers in an arena you very likely know nothing about. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly vulnerable. And the parent, I think this is worth pointing out, is not the patient. And the the baby is the patient. And so parents, if they're quiet, like if like you're saying, if they're stoic, they will not be seen, you know, mm-hmm. or or assessed. We, I think we're starting to do better with screening in the NICU. That's been the push from maternal mental health professionals is we, you cannot not check with parents. We absolutely have to know how they're doing. Um, but they're not the patient. And so they get, I think they do get forgotten and sidelined, unfortunately. Um, and I think unconsciously parents don't want to bring attention to themselves. They want every resource all the expert care and knowledge in the room to go to that baby. And so I think unconsciously they collude with being okay. And it is survival. This is primal. We're, mm. We want to just get through things. We power through things when we have to. I think that's what's remarkable. That's why we still walk the earth. We're very good at it. But it is not a question of if it will come back to bear down on us. It will. It just mm-hmm. will. The trauma, the distress will just wait. And it always does. And it the body keeps the score. The body always wins. It will return. And so um, I think that's what's not understood and, and not communicated well enough is that, you know, parents should be told when you get out, please find a therapist, find a support group, get on a Facebook parent group. Like you have to absolutely have to process what you just went through. Um, and the criteria for trauma, according to the DSM five, which is therapy Bible of mental disorders. Um, you meet the criteria for trauma so easily. It's every family in the NICU meets the criteria for trauma, Mm. which is, that you fear your loved one could be harmed or die. Of course you do. Right. You know, of course you're fretting for their very life. So there's there's not a family I see come out of the NICU that does not have trauma. Um, and sometimes that's capital T, sometimes that's lowercase t. You know, we don't always know the severity. It has a lot of relevance to what they bring into the NICU experience. Um but they they do need help. They absolutely do need support. It is um, it's an overwhelming experience on every level. With that support and the trauma, and looking back and thinking about families who are going through the NICU now, when you leave the NICU, you're thrown into a whole new chapter where you just keep moving forward. Right, you're in early intervention. You have all these specialist appointments. You just keep keep going, keep going, mm-hmm. keep going. Some people are going back to work, and you're trying to manage that childcare and feeling safe if your child's in a daycare setting mm-hmm. or at in-home care or what, whatever path that you take. If you were speaking to a NICU parent now, and yes, they all need some type of support, but some might be less likely to get it than others. What would be some signs? that you would tell a parent that they might have and say, you really should think about going to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. What would be red flags for somebody that they might be having? I mean, frequently we hear that they live with 
a lot of intrusive thoughts, a lot of visualizing something t- terrible happening to their baby. Um, not necessarily content from the NICU, but just frightening thoughts that mm-hmm. overwhelm and set the fight or flight response in motion and palpitate and bring sweat and fear and terror. Um, so there's a lot of intrusive thoughts that we hear about. Um, certainly depression can set in. Um, anxiety is a vigilance, you know, it is checking the baby all through the night, uh, not being able to relax into a day. Um, the, the nervous system calibrates to the situation, which is incredible about it, but then it can't stay there and we have to help them calibrate down. And so people think of anxiety as part of their personality. And so when you sort of spell out symptoms of chest tightness, shortness of breath, obsessional thinking, you know, they, people don't understand that's that's how they may have always thought, but now they just obsess a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so to parse this out of this is a piece of you, but it's not you. And we can, we can make these things better. You know, a lot of families don't sleep very well. There's having a baby, but then also their minds race, their minds keep them up, you know, a lot of sleep disorders, um, a lot of relational struggle, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't tell your baby off. You can tell your partner off. There's a lot of distance that grows between couples sometimes, you know, and they start to feel disconnected and, you know, unhappy with each other. So it's, it's really can show up in a variety of ways, but, but it generally does show up. And, you know, we're, I think particularly in this country, we power ourselves or we pride ourselves on sort of powering through difficult things. We particularly don't make it easy for men to talk about their feelings. We allow men to be happy and be angry and we don't allow much in the middle. And so frequently the, the dads very sort of stoically to use that word, which is so helpful, um, just kind of press on, mm-hmm. you know, or numb. They start to numb. You know, we do start to hear about addiction, use, anything that takes them out of their minds to cope. Um, but I think dads who maybe have less friends in general, less social connections in general, um, suffer more because women do tend to connect. You know, Mm -hmm. they do try to, a lot of them do try to find a community. Um, and men, we, we leave out in the cold, unfortunately, they don't, they often frequently aren't even asked if they're okay, Mm -hmm. which is, um, the sort of the second tragedy of it all. And I think we can do a lot better for dads. When you talk about the trauma of the NICU, and I'm, uh, I totally agree with the dads. We talk a lot about NICU dads and, and trying to foster a connection among them uh, to talk with one another, which is helpful just in and of mm-hmm. itself. With postpartum depression and the trauma of the NICU, do those red flags... Are they compounded or what does that look like for moms who might not recognize 
the onset of postpartum depression after giving birth and going right into the NICU? It's definitely compounded. Yeah, every um, every variable you add to the peripartum time period um, is a complicating factor. Yeah, and the NICU is, becomes one of them. You know, um, sometimes there's you know maternal health issues too that are part of it. Um, we don't really try to parse it out because the NICU experience is in the postpartum climate. So oh, yeah. it is, we see it all as one okay. um, and treat it as one. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, we don't separate that out. Um, and it's relevant, you know, the what's considered sort of diagnostic is anything in the peripartum time period, which is preconception to anything that emerges up to a year postpartum. But if it emerged within that year postpartum, it's postpartum. And if it didn't resolve, it's still postpartum. So we do actually see families who have unresolved postpartum um, depression, anxiety, and trauma from five years ago. Mm-hmm. And it often surprises them because I'm like, well, this is actually postpartum. And they're like, wait, I don't understand because I just dropped my kid off at kindergarten. Right. So mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense. But if it has emerged and it has not resolved, that is still postpartum depression and anxiety, which is, I think, um, uh, just a fact of, of the specialty that is not well understood and not talked about enough. So thanks for the opportunity mm-hmm. to talk about that. And as we continue to talk about this anxiety and trauma, one of the other areas that I know you've touched on, Silver, in in some of your past writings is about detachment. Mm-hmm. And the fear and the anxiety, I mean, I, I remember it vividly, uh, not knowing if our surviving twin would make it out of the NICU at the end of the day. So can you talk to us a little bit about detachment and ways that you try to help moms connect with their babies? Yeah, absolutely. So I personally have always had issues with attachment. That kind of goes back to my own childhood and things like that. But I was also very... Um, book informed, I guess you could say. So I knew the importance of attachment for the child. So in my own personal experience, um, even before we got to the NICU trauma, I was very much a fake it till you make it type, like do the things that encourage good bonding, do the things that help build attachment. And eventually we got there. I kind of saw it as any relationship. So, you know, we don't give birth to our spouse, but we learn how to bond and connect with them. And so I kind of thought of it that same way as I was trying to bond with my children. But when you add in that extra layer of are they going to survive, um, previous loss, NICU stays, medical issues, things like that, I think it's extra compounded. And I would say that I don't like for What I typically recommend is just kind of trying to take moment by moment. Like, I think we get wrapped up in this. If I'm not deeply connected and loved with this child at six days, we're going to have issues at six years. And so kind of taking it day by day and doing what you can that day to connect with the baby. So doing that skin to skin, even when it's scary, Um, when they come home, it's the, you know, Baby wearing, if it's safe and comfortable, it's, you know, if breastfeeding works out great, if it doesn't, it means holding your baby as often as you can during the feeds. Um, It's just that um, finding ways to connect and build relationship almost as you would in any relationship. Um, My daughter was born after two back-to-back miscarriages and then her pregnancy 
was mostly good, but there was a few times where I had some complications. And again, go back to that worry. Are we going to get through this? Is she going to be born? And then my water breaking early and all these, you know, other things. And I remember being in the NICU and people would, the the nurses were awesome. Everybody would use her name. Everybody would kind of, and I would, and I couldn't even, I remember getting to that point. I wouldn't call her my daughter. I wouldn't call her her name. And I would just say the baby. I was mm-hmm. not comfortable using her name and I never, and I wasn't comfortable. She was born after all boys. So daughter wasn't in my vocabulary very much. So to kind of add that into my vocabulary, I was a little bit nervous to do so, but I remember just being like, okay, I'm not somebody who naturally attaches easily and I love all my children. We got there. So I'm going to get there with her too. It's just going to take a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And I also remember using logic in that point of being like we humans take care of their babies even when things are hard in the beginning we take care of our babies we are capable of overcoming trauma and bonding we are capable of building love even you know even outside of the NICU there are parents you can give birth to a baby and be instantly in love you can give birth to a baby and kind of take three six whatever months to get to bond um you might need therapy to assist with bonding that has no bearing on your capabilities as a parent. It doesn't mean you aren't grateful and in love with your child. It just means some of us, it takes time to build a relationship. And when you throw in extra trauma, it's going to take a little, it's natural for it to take a little bit longer. And I think we're protective. You know, we have that protective aspect of, I don't want to lose them. And if I get, and it's almost a lie because whether you're attached or not, if you lose a child, if you lose a pregnancy, you're going to be devastated. Mm-hmm. But I think we lie to ourselves thinking that it's going to be easier if we don't attach. So it was for me. And when I work with families, it's just that idea of build that relationship. Don't stress on the fact that you're not bonded. Mm -hmm. Don't obsess and worry. You know, what happens today on six days after your baby was born and had a breathing tube in their throat and things like that. That's not necessarily going to mean you're not going to be in love and happy and skipping down the road when they're six, you know, and, Really, any parent journey, there's moments where it's skipping down the road and moments where you're like, oh, my goodness, this is really, really difficult and I'm struggling, you know, and I think it speaks to what Kelly was saying about this idea that we only hear the good stuff. We don't hear the hard moments. So when you're the NICU parent who's struggling to bond, there's that idea of I must be the only parent who doesn't love my child or I might be the only parent who's struggling to connect. Um, And I think that's where not only the professional support, but also meeting other NICU parents Mm -hmm. who can be like, hey, it's really scary in the beginning. And, you know, I struggled to, you know, use their name. I struggled. And um, but we got there, you know, and um, the nurses were really wonderful. Like, I love how the nurses just always use their names like all along the, you know, they were just very encouraging of bonding. The nurses, mm-hmm. you know, encourage you to hold your baby, even when you're terrified, they're mm-hmm. like, just hold your baby. They're going to be okay. I know they look fragile. I know it's really scary, but hold your baby. And, you know, it's going through those steps, those scary moments and getting to that through that scary moment and be like, okay, we were okay. I held my baby. It was scary, but it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And the next time it gets easier and the next time it gets easier. And, you know, my daughter's three and a half now and she is like glued to me. <laughs> Both of us. I still like she, um, you know, with quarantine and everything, we had kind of eliminated childcare for a very long time. And then she was gone two days in a row for about six hours. And I was like, I don't know what to do here, you know, because I had gotten so used to right. just 
being glued to her. So I would say it's just that aspect of it's a relationship. It takes time. And if you throw in trauma, any relationship with trauma is, you know, it has its challenges. When we talk about the NICU stay, and I know this is something that parents have a lot of trouble doing, is self-care, right? Big topic. (laughs) And I think that they struggle to leave the NICU, feel guilty walking out that door to even go get something to eat, let alone go home and sleep, that they feel as though they need to be there every hour of every day. How do you help people through that? I'm asking both of you. I'll start with you, Kelly, and then we can circle back to you, Silver. But what's your advice for parents for self-care? I don't want to miss the chance to piggyback on something that Silver said um, the, about detachment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really expected to feel a little bit detached. Um, it is really primitive survival. Um in colonial times, they didn't even name their children until there were two. So we it's just a way of protecting against impending loss and grief. So it is, it's not pathological, it's really expected. Um, and it is generally a part of it. And when the anxiety is so pervasive, um, the nervous system really does hijack the empathic system and the ability to connect. And so it's sort of a perfect storm of feeling almost this, like I can't leave the bedside, but I feel sometimes they report this sort of flatness towards the baby. So it's this really interesting dichotomy, right? Like I can't go home and take a shower. I don't know how I feel about this baby. This baby's terrifying me and I would do anything for it. It's such a confusing mix. And I think that's like what's so um, paradoxical and seemingly contradicting in the experience, but it does psychologically make sense. I mean, we really, it is, it's an adaptive coping mechanism and the shame that parents bear when they don't immediately feel this, you know, profound emotional sort of mind-blowing love whatever their version of love means often makes them feel terrible and um they don't tell anybody you know um but they often it's 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 quite public you know there's there's staff around it's sterile there's people in and out they don't have an, a, an, a relationship with their child privately yet um, there's so many things getting in the way of bonding. And you know, I think we we bring a long history now of attachment theory to NICU experience, which I think has been improved upon in so many ways. And palliative care, when a mm-hmm. family is expecting to lose their child at birth, um, it is informed in ways that have come a long way. <laughs> We're yes. so proud that the field has brought those along Um so anyway, to, to then transition into this idea of self-care, self-care is, um, it's not optional. It's not, a, it's not decadent. It is not, um, maybe you should do it. You know, the integrity of the person's whole system is on the line and they will not function. End of story. 
But um, how do you get them over that hump to realize mm. that it's important? I mean, oh, I think that's that's, my... that's the key, right? Oh. It's that you. We talk to a lot of families, yeah. and I was blessed that I actually had a. My mother lived with us, and she would say, "No, you're coming home now." Right? She would. Mm-hmm. She pulled the mom card where she went, yeah. "No, you're coming home from the NICU. You need to rest. You have to get better." Not everyone has that in right. place, nor will everyone listen to their mother, probably like I did. But how do you get people over that? Over that hurdle to say, oh, oh it's this important. is what I get up every day for. <laughs> this is what is the passion of my life's work. Um, I love this part of helping families. Um, you have to believe you deserve your own good care and your own nurture and nourishment in order to be able to do it. And so it really comes down to self-love and self-care. And we also have to reject this narrative that culturally we're still enamored with, which is that parents have to be martyrs. Mothers in particular have to be martyrs. They have to give everything until their fingers are bleeding and they're, you know, in a pile on the floor, non-functional. I mean, we are into that idea that women give everything for their children. And the reality is, Children don't do well with that. They don't need that. They don't want that. They actually know that there's too much pressure on them and they want their parents cared for and nourish well themselves. And so I think to understand that less self-care doesn't equal better parenting, it degrades parenting. It degrades the relationship. And I don't know that that's always apparent at the surface, um, but this is why I love therapy so much <laughs> is because we get to walk people through that, and um, there's incredible freedom in that. Um, and mom actually really does want to go take that run, and she really does want to take a nap, and she really does want to get her nails done or see her friend and have coffee, um, and she should. And she mm-hmm. absolutely should, and her child will benefit from that. Her her marriage or partnership will benefit from that. So um, there's nothing good to be gained by not doing it, but it's very, very difficult. And um, we at the Maternal Wellness Center like to talk about self-care all the time. I don't think we can wear that topic out. I mean, that is something I will talk about to the day I die because it is, um, it's misunderstood and it's undervalued. And they can be simple things for self-care. A thousand percent. Most of it is, right? You know, go to the bathroom, close the door and lock it. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Stay in bed a little bit later. You know, watch that movie you've been longing for. Put the, let the dishes just sit for the night. Let the laundry go unfolded. You know, the compulsivity of keeping the home and what that means for how people see themselves degrades wellness profoundly. Mm -hmm. And if you have... A baby you just got out of the NICU or home with a typical baby after birth, your house should look terrible. It should be a disaster. You know, this is not some badge of honor to make it all look perfect. But unfortunately, women frequently, day in and day out, describe to me that that's actually how they 
perceive motherhood, that they're supposed to keep a clean house and make dinner and watch the child and maybe give up their career if they had one and or want to want to give up their career. And they may still be fighting to have one, but they may feel bad about that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, to help women understand that, like, no, they do get to actually be a full person inside their motherhood and that everybody wins when that happens. And there's not a one size fits all for motherhood. There's these great ideas. Everyone's so interested that there's one formula for parenthood. I think because there's so much anxiety around it, it's, it's so comforting to think if you just follow these three simple (laughs) steps, you'll just, you'll be nailing parenthood. Um, but that's, I was just absolutely not true. Motherhood and parenthood and fatherhood looks really different for every person. And, and the person being true to their own, their own needs, their own interests, their own self has to find the place of their own parenthood. Um, and I think I'm grateful that I had children before Facebook was in my life and before Instagram was in my life because these profoundly sanitized images of motherhood are misleading and they are damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, they are just not real. You know, there's some sites that are and I love them for being just the for brutally honest um, content, but frequently it's very, very sanitized um, and it, it doesn't help anybody. So that's what Maternal Wellness Center has really sort of staked its whole reputation on is like telling the truth about motherhood and allowing the, the woman or the father's own story to emerge. Who are you going to be inside your own parenthood? And you're still going to be a person because mm-hmm. if you're not, your family will suffer. You still have to be who you are and be true to who you are. Um, that's family life, right? And and you mentioned dads. How do we help dads more? I know we talked about it a little oh. bit before, but I do believe that that is an area that does not have a lot of support. It doesn't. I just hired a man, a maternal wellness center, and I could not be more excited about that. Um, we, we do need to change this conversation. I mean, I think this conversation we're having today is critical. And for everyone who hears and for dads who hear that their emotional life matters, um, what they bring, the the self they bring into their parenthood, their marriage, their partnership, whatever it is, their, their um, journey as a single father, how they're doing is everything. They do not have to disown and compartmentalize whole aspects of themselves um, for the risk of not being seen as sort of manly enough or masculine enough. And we lose whole pieces of men that go underdeveloped and underexpressed. And we we all lose for that, men, men in particular. There's two men in the room here, so <laughs> looking at you guys, <laughs> it's really about integrating the whole self. Um, and we we allow a little bit more room for women to do that than men. And um, yeah. Anything you want to add to that, Silver, just from the families you've worked with over the years? I think that, you know, NICU or not NICU, that idea of parents have to be a martyr is very, very pervasive, especially even in, you know, like 
postpartum doula support, it's, you know, hiring somebody to help you. And I think people get tied up on, there's just this idea that, you know, it's acceptable to buy, you know, nice clothes. It's acceptable to buy the really expensive crib. It's acceptable to get the trendy designer strollers. But the idea of spending money on caring for a mother is like, shocking to people like they they almost feel like it's not acceptable Mm -hmm. to spend money on their self-care and even outside something like having a doula just like the little things like you were talking about like that idea that you're not worth that time you're not worth and I think we have this idea like baby especially in the NICU obviously needs so much care but you matter too you are vital. You are equally as important and you are deserving of care and support. And I think, you know, kind of what I was saying earlier was the idea of making friends with the nurses. The more that you trust the people that your child's in care with, the easier I think it is to step away a little bit. That's just one aspect. Again, I think all of the nurses are capable, but I think that emotional component for the parents kind of asking questions, getting to know them enough that you feel comfortable stepping away. And they all tell you to go home. Every single one of them will tell you to go home, go get a shower, go eat something. (laughs) Um, I remember we had a child in the hospital one time and actually it was our Nikki daughter. We had an emergency room visit when she, about a week and a half after she came home. So we're still like, we haven't even processed what we're going through. And we're sitting in the um, ER room for a really long time because they were waiting to see if they're going to admit or send home. And I think, you know, the incident happened around eight or nine in the morning. So I hadn't really like had breakfast yet. We ended up in an ambulance ride, ER, another ambulance ride, another ER. And I think it was around three o'clock and there was like a shift change. A nurse came in. She's like, hey, um, do you guys want some food? And she brought us sandwiches, you know? And it was one of those, like, I didn't even stop to think to like eat. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just one of those, we, we get so focused, but then you know, in that, how did we get there? Well, part of it was a minor accident. I had tripped. And how did I get to the point of tripping over an apnea monitor? Fatigue. I mean, I Mm -hmm. came home from the NICU, not having rested, not having, and my motor control just wasn't quite there. Thankfully, she was fine. We were both fine. But it was like this aha moment that it isn't even like a mental thing. Like your body needs nutrition. Your body needs rest. Your body needs to nourish your soul, do things that make you, you and feel good about you. And, um, cause if you don't, it's actually a risk, you Mm -hmm. know, whether to your own health or to the people around you, you have to take care of yourself. And it wasn't really until the end of the NICU say that I even was like, okay, it's okay for me to sit down and eat a meal rather than eat a burger in my car. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because one, I'm not getting a lot of nutrition and two, like, it's okay. They're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I see that even in um, new moms, you know, there's just this idea that, you know, we kind of talked, you you, you touched on that um, focus on breastfeeding, which I think is an important focus, but not to the detriment of someone's health and mm-hmm. wellness. And especially when you're combining that NICU of like pumping and, you know, yeah. all of these things. And um, you get to this idea. I remember one of the biggest advice that I eventually started giving parents was, Babies cry when they're hungry and you do need to meet your baby's need. But before you sit down to feed them, because it could be in the beginning, I mean, it can be 15 minutes, it could be 40 minutes. Go to the bathroom, grab your snack, 
grab your water, then sit down and feed the baby. Make sure you have a book or something to watch or your phone, something to do. And yes, everyone's like, oh, gaze into baby's eyes. You're feeding this baby eight to 12 times a day. Like it's okay to nourish your brain, you know, around doing that. And I think that's just like such a little tip that I have always given in my childbirth classes and things like that, because I don't think I figured it out until like my third son and um, my husband was working out of town. And so there was the survival mode. But through that, I was like, if I don't take care of myself, we're not going to survive. And so it became this every time before I would feed him. I'm like, what do I need to do so I can sit down and relax? And then I'm being a better parent to be able to relax and connect with him meeting his needs because I'm not stressed Mm -hmm. about having not met my own needs yeah i would like to figure out how to get silver to go back for a master's degree in counseling (laughs) and hire her immediately i love it that's what makes her so good at what she does as a postpartum doula but i just want to jump in and say absolutely when the body is hungry and tired and fatigued it will panic it will show signs of strain. It's really not if it's when. And so um, you really, it's not optional to not meet basic needs. And let's be honest, those apnea monitors make a lot of noise. (laughs) They do. And they go off a lot. Yeah, it was one of those simple, I just went to pick her up and we just tripped. And it was one of those, I felt my my reflexes off. Like it was one of those, like my arms are not working as fast as they should be and I am exhausted. And Mm. it was actually after that moment that I was like, you know what? I don't care what it takes. I need to sleep. Right. You know, one of those, like no matter what, it's okay to meet your needs because everyone tells you this, mm-hmm. you know, they tell you, oh, not sleeping is, you know, the equivalent. If you start driving, if you haven't had enough sleep, it's the equivalent of tr- driving in- impaired. And yet we accept and even expect parents to do this. And it's really not, you know, something mm-hmm. that is safe or okay. Um, and I think it just takes a lot of education, you know, reminding parents, even, you know, you touched on being glad that social media wasn't a thing. I always think about, I could never have been a first time parent when social media was as big as it is now. And I mean, if we're Facebook friends, like I tend to post some of my like most ridiculous parenting moments, not because I even am comfortable or like to do it, but just in my line of work, I'm like, somebody here needs to know that it is a complete mess in my house and I'm a disaster of a parent, but I'm just really good at teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, I am still a mess. It is still really hard. Like I can't keep my house in order. I'm still trying to figure out how to keep my preschooler entertained, even though she's my youngest and I've been here before. Um, parenting's hard and I think we can't have that sanitized version out there. It's kind of toxic to our whole culture. I adore that you do that as frequently (laughs) as you do. And I also try to do that. I think that is incredibly loving of our, our mom comrades to tell the truth. Um, we need more of it. We need more content like you put out. It's so, it's so loving. It's so funny. It's so real and it's so raw and it's a story that has to be told. Um, so thanks for doing that. <laughs> I feel like we have so many different topics that we could just keep talking for hours. We but are power podcasting yes, today. Yes. <laughs> but I, I did want to bring up one thing, which I think is really important. I think it does relate back to mental health as well and self-care. I remember how difficult it was. So many people were reaching out to us, texting, calling, leaving messages that it was completely overwhelming Mm -hmm. after Claire and Mary were born. And we had to find a way, and we talked to families about this a lot. We had to find a way to communicate in the best way that we felt comfortable 
but people could sign into that and they could Mm -hmm. decide whether they wanted to follow along with our journey or not. And I think that's an important part of families navigating through the NICU of finding that way of communicating with others, knowing that you don't have to text everyone back, that it is your call on how you communicate with people. For us, we use the site Caring Bridge, and it was a great way for us to write the blog posts that we wanted. Some people like to share a lot of information. Some people are in the middle and some don't share that much. We were kind of not that much to the middle, I would say, where we shared overall updates on the girls, how they were doing, and then on Claire when she continued on. But finding that outlet for you as a as a NICU parent that makes sense to communicate without it being overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, for me, I I shared very little in the beginning. And I even remember using like when she was born, there was one picture before she was, you know, had all the contraptions and IVs and tubes on her right when she was born that the nurse had us take. And then after that, for the first several weeks, it was like a hand or a foot or and I didn't actually share any of the medicalized looking pictures until well after we were home. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even interesting now because I shared something recently and someone was like, I had no idea she went through so much. You know, um, I definitely waited on that because I wasn't comfortable with all the questions. Right. And I think and this was actually came up on a different topic, but someone was saying and I was like, wow, that is so true. People's curiosity doesn't trump your rights. Mm-hmm. People want to know what's going on and there's nothing wrong with being curious. But as the person who's experiencing it, you do not owe anyone an explanation of what's going on. If you want to share, awesome. If you are not ready or comfortable sharing, you do not have to. Mm-hmm. Um, what is helpful, though, is maybe having a point person who you can relay specifics to and they can, you know, pass that out to other people. Um, Caring Bridge is something that I used when we were kind of navigating my daughter's surgeries and things like that. Because when you're sitting in PICU after surgery, you don't want to be on Facebook or answering messages or things like that. It can be super overwhelming. For other people, they might find that to be helpful. Um, I think it just depends on your circumstances Mm -hmm. and your circle. Definitely. Um, And then a little bit different, but when our foster son passed away, A friend of mine is a social worker and I I feel like everyone needs a doula and a social worker and a therapist (laughs) friend because if you have them in your circle, like they just naturally are really awesome friends. Um, And anyway, she just like, she's like, what's your schedule? I'm figuring out rides. And she contacted everyone. There were parents that, you know, I knew, but I didn't like know really well. She figured out who lived where, who was had availability and just set up the ride schedule. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to text anybody. She's just like, she would check in at the beginning of the week. Let me know what days you need what. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And that was like one of the biggest um, burdens lifted was mm-hmm. not having to think and not having to contact. And then there's that other aspect, I think, that can be difficult to ask for help because my husband has no problem doing it. He's a very confident person. And he's like, hey, are you available? No. Okay, cool. I'd be like, oh my gosh, did I just inconvenience them by asking them for help and they're not available? Mm-hmm. Like that's where my brain goes. So I found it really helpful for somebody to be like, I'd like to bring you a meal. 
what day would you like it? Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to take your laundry and wash it and fold it for you rather than being like, what do you need help with? Yes. I find it's hard because I think sometimes you don't even know what you need help with. Mm -hmm. um, your brain, it's just too much to stop and think and process. And so, you know, I had the friend who set up all the rides, which was huge. I had, you know, somebody who was at my kid's school when my daughter was in the NICU, drove them every single day while I was on bed rest and every single day after we came home. And then after the incident where with the apnea monitor, she actually continued to drive them because she was like, I think this woman needs a little bit more assistance, mm -hmm. which was just, I mean, one, literally one of the most helpful things I've ever had in my entire life. But um, I think it comes down to having that point person mm -hmm. who kind of lifts that burden for you to communicate to other people and then having something like Bridge or Facebook or whatever you're comfortable with or nothing. Mm -hmm. You are under no obligation to share your journey with anyone. Right. Um, yes, they may be curious, but it's up to you. And I think yeah. that's what's important for people to know. It's what you're comfortable with, how you feel sharing the information and what you want to share. It's what's so important. So big piece of advice. What do you tell families you're working with? What's one thing that you want people to remember? If someone's offering help, say yes. It's <laughs> great. Um, I think that it's it's really critical. People can tolerate help to very different degrees. Um, but there's no doing that alone. I think it's, in, it's, it's incredibly loving from our people and our friends and they feel so helpless too. Um, and they want to help. And that's actually a gift to, to your family and friends to let them help you mm -hmm. if you can tolerate it. Um, so I would say, um, yeah, if someone's asking the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> Love that. Silver, what's your biggest piece of advice? I mean, I kind of echo Kelly, <laughs> take yeah. the help um, and be, it's okay to struggle with the journey because nobody's doing it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no perfect. It's there not isn't. a thing. It's not a it place. Exist. No, <laughs> it's mythology. Yeah. Take the help and be, um, just realize that what you're experiencing is normal. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thank you both for being here today. For Such a big me. topic. We have so much more to talk about <laughs> in the future. <laughs> But happy to have you today and thank you for sharing your yeah. expertise. Thank you. Thank you for having us.